This is the Butterfly Podcast from your friends, Butterfly Foundation, your national voice for people living with body image issues and eating disorders. In this episode, we're talking about the tyranny of distance faced by people who aren't lucky enough to live in the major cities. I was so desperate for help, particularly given that I'd already tasted freedom and life without um, an eating disorder. As he weighed her, he made a sound like, oh, and I thought, that is outrageous. There was really no one to admit her under. There was no support within that space. You know, I was surrounded by so many people, but I'd never felt so alone. I'm Sam Eichen, and like more than one million other Australians, I've been affected by an eating disorder. Of those one million people, only one in four ever receives any kind of treatment or specialist support. I've written about my experience before, and I'll post a link in the show notes if you want to read it. But it's not something I talk about very often, because so many people simply don't believe it exists, or they don't believe that someone who looks like me could be affected. But eating disorders don't discriminate. Not by postcode, age, gender identity, colour, culture, size, shape or sexuality. And the number of us affected is growing. It's affected every aspect of my life, And I can't think of anything else in the world that I'd like more than to be free of this disorder. As much as I don't love talking about it, I know how much I've been helped from hearing others with lived experience, so I'm prepared to pay that forward in any way that I can. Kids these days are being exposed to a bombardment of what are unreal images in social media. And we know that children as as early as the ages of seven or eight can start to develop body image issues. That's Kevin Barrow, Butterfly Foundation CEO and all-round good guy. Even today, when we understand so much about mental health, eating disorders are far less well understood, even though they're a really serious mental illness. We've seen with depression and anxiety that the world has come a long way over the last 10 years. It used to be the the sense of, well, if you're a bit depressed, you need to just pull your socks up and and get on with it in that sort of Australian fashion. But with eating disorders, there is still quite a degree of stigma still attached. And we've seen depression be understood as, you know, it's an illness, it's not a choice. There's still so much understanding with respect to eating disorders. Around a year ago, Kevin left the high-flying corporate world where he was working for multinational conglomerates where profit was the bottom line. And now he's chosen to chase a career with what he calls a social return. And I remember my, my first meeting at, at Butterfly on my very first day was, was a couple who uh, were handing me a significant donation um, as a result of their daughter passing uh, and her death benefit being paid out. And um, it was a tragic story, but this uh, young lady had lost her battle with an eating disorder. And when they handed me the donation, they said, just make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else's child. And it's an incredible responsibility. I'm very proud of the team uh, that we have at Butterfly because every day that's what we wake up in the morning and try to do. As we record this, Kevin and the team are flat out working on the annual May Days campaign for 2020. That's Butterfly's annual awareness, fundraising and advocacy campaign. This time around, the campaign's called Pushing Past Postcodes. It's focusing on the significant disadvantage simply caused by where some people live. We know that often if you develop an eating disorder in a rural or remote community, 
the first challenge you have is is finding a general practitioner who knows enough that they can adequately diagnose you and um, seek appropriate care. If you're lucky enough in, in this case to be diagnosed by someone who is competent, then what you face is the search for someone who can treat you. And if you're living in a remote part of Australia, that often means significant travel, significant expense, and in many cases, people actually need to relocate from the country to a metro area. That tyranny of distance is being made even worse by the COVID-19 event. The resulting isolation and restrictions to the support services that are so vital to recovery means that some people are doing it extra tough. We've tracked down three people who have very different lived experiences but they're all affected by the tyranny of distance. Brooke is originally from Millicent, which is in regional South Australia. She's currently working in Victoria. I am a journalist and I live in Mildura and work full-time at the Sunraiser Daily. Brooke was diagnosed with an eating disorder when she was a teenager and she struggled with it until she was a young adult, but she has tasted life in recovery. I decided to move overseas to just sort of, you know, new adventure, my head a bit and I was fine for the next four years that followed that but when I moved back home two years ago um it sort of obviously there was a lot of unfinished business that I hadn't sort of dealt with when I'd left and it triggered um triggered a lot of emotions and I dealt with them how I'd dealt with them previously and that was with the eating disorder again so that sort of started again and has been um, yeah, ongoing for the past two years. Um, it really heightened at the start of this year. Next, we're going to the other side of the country, to Mia, who's from Western Australia. So I am the carer of a teenager with a disorder, anorexia, um, and it has been going on since 2016. And it has been something that has rocked our whole family, our extended family and our friends. Um, it's changed everything that we do and think, um, the way we behave, the way we use food. Our next guest lives in Hobart, Tasmania, like I do. And with the easing of the COVID-19 restrictions, we sat down for a cup of tea. Why not? Any time of the day. <laughs> While our other two guests are still trying to find recovery, Rebecca has helped her daughter get there. But it was not an easy road. My daughter, when she was 19, developed quite acutely a anorexia and that that was some four or five years ago now luckily and full credit to her she is now fully recovered and actually having a baby so that sort of that's a great illustration of that recovery is possible and never stop believing that after the COVID-19 event, we can all relate to the feelings of frustration and powerlessness, but for people living in regional and remote areas, that's how it is all the time. That feeling of isolation and that inability to get desperately needed services and treatments, for them it continues. And it couldn't have come at a worse time for Brooke from Millicent. I was really desperate for help. I hit rock bottom again about a year ago. I uh, was referred to see the psychiatrist in Adelaide, which, mind you, is four hours away from Millicent. Um, And you don't really want to be travelling that far from home, away from that support network of your family and friends. Um, It can feel like quite isolating, I guess. Prior to that appointment, I was actually seeing a psychologist in Mount Gambia, but I think there's a very limited number of psychologists who deal with eating disorders in the region. 
and I, there was an eight-week wait to actually see them, which is way, way too long when you're desperately needing to speak to someone. found it really hard not to have the consistent and regular appointments. Not long after my appointment in Adelaide, I moved to Mildura and I thought that could be another fresh start that I needed. Unfortunately, that was not the case. And yeah, my eating disorder really, really heightened. Probably was the worst that it had ever been. It was really, really draining, to be honest, and started to take a huge toll on every, every aspect of my life. My social life, my work life, my mental and physical health. It was really, really, really hard to deal with. You know, I was surrounded by so many people, but I never felt so alone. It was just draining. But yet again, I was so desperate for help, particularly given that I'd already tasted freedom and life without um, an eating disorder. But I was faced yet again with the fact that there were very limited psychologists who specialise in eating disorders and an eight-week wait. This was really, really difficult for me. I felt, like I said, really alone and I also felt so frustrated at how hard it was to access services and how limited the available services actually were. Now we go back to Mia from Western Australia who had difficulty finding help for her daughter Elle right from the very start. When she started to have some serious concerns about Elle, Mia went to the first place anyone goes for medical advice. She became uh, more distant, wearing baggy clothes. I noticed her hair falling out and she was definitely very moody. So we sought help from our GP who was not a lot of help at the time possibly due to her lack of education and exposure to eating disorders. We then tried to get help for her and um, trying to find where to go was something that caused me as a, as a mother and a primary carer, the responsibility fell on me, trying to navigate what was happening with our daughter Elle and where to go and not wanting to be too dramatic or assume the worst. You know, was there something medical going on? Was there something mental? We, we just didn't know. Um, eventually, we noticed her physically uh, looking very undernourished and um, noticed other signs and symptoms. That was only because I visited the Butterfly Foundation website and looked for signs and symptoms of eating disorders that I was able to identify that, in fact, my daughter most likely had an eating disorder. And then it it, it uh, eventuated into hospitalisations and lots and lots of tears and trauma. Struggling to find those support services, Mia found it really difficult to juggle the care that she needed to give Elle with what she needed to give her younger daughter. I think that for her sister has really, really lost a lot of her childhood through this illness. She's had to grow up very quickly and she's missed out on a lot of spontaneous and planned fun because we just couldn't be there for her as she would have liked and we would have liked. Those gaps in the continuum of care and the variability in quality of access to services is also something that Rebecca in Hobart struggled with, initially at least. If you don't get the right care, it's hard to engage the person with the eating disorder because they don't feel safe and they don't feel like the people that are looking after them are trustworthy. So I think that's that was where it was hard in the first six months is that the, the people that we found 
were not experienced in the treatment model for adults. And so getting my daughter engaged in that treatment was really challenging and, and with good reason because she didn't feel like they understood her. And I think to be brave and courageous enough to take on dealing with your own eating disorder, you need to feel like you're in uh, in the company of people that actually understand what you're going through. The, the most sticking point in my mind was when she physically deteriorated and ended up in hospital and that there was really no one to admit her under there was no adult dietitian to give an eating plan there was no support within that space and we were advised by one of the pediatric eating disorder specialists that you actually really need to take her to the mainland to access that and the sooner you can do that if you can do that the higher your hopeful recovery for recovery will be. She says that while the right professional services weren't here in Tasmania, there was a really well-established support network. But even that wasn't enough for her daughter. There was a fabulous support through TRED, Tasmanian Recovery of Eating Disorders, here when my daughter was sick. Right. Uh, we moved to Sydney on the advice of medicos to access butterfly and so she could do the intensive outpatient program which she was very keen to do when she ended up in hospital she realized she needed more help than what she was getting to be able to beat it and being the brave courageous determined thing she is when the we put the sydney option to her she said well if that's what i have to do that's what i have to do so she had to leave uni and her support of her friends and family and move to Sydney with me. Now that Butterfly are here, there is some more support here. There's groups for people recovering from eating disorder. There's support groups for carers. There's some education facility for helping carers learn to be the most effective carers they can be. And nice gosh, job. I really wish that I'd had that back then I think I would have done a much better job <laughs> so so for me giving back to that it's like if someone I felt unsupported in that and I was going in blind as was my husband about as were my other children my whole family as in what was the right thing to do there wasn't really any access to any guidance for that for us In the past two years, as a direct result of advocacy from the Butterfly Foundation, the Australian government now includes eating disorders as serious mental illnesses, but there's still a lot of work to do, especially in regional and remote postcodes, where services for eating disorders are still excluded from service provision. The access to services um, is a huge, huge challenge. And, um, yeah, you feel very isolated, um, you know, you don't really want to be travelling four hours away from home and your loved ones and your support base um, to a sort of um, city area for treatment or four hours for an appointment with a psychiatrist. Um, you know, they're services that should be accessed at home. As someone who's directly affected, Brooke sees that ongoing stigma as a huge barrier to recovery. First of all, conversation is key. So... There needs to be a lot more talk around eating disorders. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, for me, I felt quite alone and like no one really understood what I was going through when in reality there was probably many others who were going through the same sort of thing. But um, there's just that stigma and 
Yeah. So just, yeah, normalising those conversations. I think that it would be obviously like awesome if we had some sort of like program or service here as eating disorders are really complex. And also I think like a follow-up care might have helped me like coming from Adelaide and that two-week inpatient program and then just being sort of, you know, thrown back into that environment again. Um, I would have like, it would have been great to have some sort of like you know, medical follow-up and um, therapy, not just for me, but even for like my family, um, to sort of understand what I'm going through and how they could help me. Um, even though they have been such a huge help, like I wouldn't have been able to get through any of this without their support. That's where we go back to Mia in Western Australia. Through your experience, what do people in your area, people who live in, in, in areas like where you live, what do you need? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think first and foremost, we need our GPs be really well educated. We need our GPs who are the first point of contact to know and recognise um, eating disorders. Uh, my younger daughter was um, unwell uh, last year and went to the GP for a um, virus, flu, and um, the doctor that we saw, the male doctor, weighed her, and as he weighed her, he made a sound like, oh, and I thought, oh. that is outrageous. We cannot have GPs making sounds of any nature when they weigh somebody. We need GPs to understand what it is for somebody to be weighed. We need to, they need to understand how to recognise eating disorders and they need to be able to have the resources to direct us because not every parent has the ability to know what to do, to know where to look, to have the time, energy, stamina to do the things that I've done. I think if our GPs were better equipped and better educated, they would have a list of resources that they could then um, inform us and send parents to. And I also think schools and school nurses uh, could also be a really fantastic resource because they see the students day in and day out. And they would hopefully have some kind of idea of what's normal and what's going on. Mia says where she lives, the support and services available to family members is an area that needs a huge amount of improvement. We have a group called Drive for support, teach, reassure, inform, validate and empower. And we meet on the third Tuesday of every month at 6.30. Um, it's such an important, um, valuable resource for parents and carers to be able to come together and share how they're feeling, what their worries are, what their concerns are with people who understand. I don't think we can underestimate how important it is to give the carers If you think you could benefit from a carer and recovery support group like the one that Mia just described, check out the Butterfly Foundation's website or Eating Disorders Families Australia at edfa.org.au. They've got tons of resources there for families and carers, and there may well be an existing group in your area. 
Back to Tasmania, and since her daughter's experience, Rebecca's become heavily involved in helping others find recovery in her home state. She says that she's seen some dramatic improvements in the services available. I think Tasmania's on the on the road up for accessing care, and that's great, and hopefully more remote areas around Australia are feeling that same more supported vibe in this area of mental illness because it is important just because you don't live in a big city doesn't mean you don't get a mental illness so everyone should be able to access the same level of care. So I now work down here for Butterfly as a peer facilitator. I run the care support groups with another girl and I also run a program called CCSW which is a six-week program that teaches collaborative skills for you to collaborate with the team and your loved one in caring for them while they're taking the journey of working through their eating disorder. And um, in general, I think there's been a feeling from most of the people I've spoken to that the first, your frontline, your first point of call, you know, your GP or the ones that you run into first, you could get lucky, but they tend to be less across first aid for eating disorders or encouraging people to take the right first step. Are we making any progress on that, do you think? I think the presence of Butterfly is starting to to do that and I think the um you know the whole media aspect and coverage of eating disorders being mental illnesses and the acknowledgement of that is meaning that more clinicians are becoming more engaged in wanting to understand and help treat that. When we went to Sydney Butterfly actually had a database of all the clinicians in Sydney that were specific to eating disorders that they'd interviewed and felt that they were able to recommend their clients to. So I rang them and they could say, yes, well, in your area, there's, you know, five psychologists, here are their numbers, there's four dietitians, here are their numbers, there's these GPs that specialise in eating disorders. That database was just totally irreplaceable it was gold for us especially not knowing anyone up there but it meant that I could find all the different people of the team that actually specialized in eating disorders and they had communication frameworks set up back in butterfly headquarters CEO Kevin Barrow nods along as I tell him what Brooke Mia and Rebecca have told me I think in talking to a lot of parents uh, who have looked after kids with uh, eating disorders, they often say that first contact with a general practitioner can be very, very problematic. You know, the wrong thing can be said, as you mentioned. Um, it can be made too simplistic. And, and I do um, understand that GPs, it's a challenging role. You know, they're dealing with lots of different um, conditions and so on. But we do need to raise the, the level of awareness there. Um, people can also contact things like our national helpline, Eddie Hope, um, and ask to be put in contact with clinicians who have a real interest and are learning and understanding in this area. And that's one of the services that we provide here at Butterfly. And I'll put out that number really shortly, but we heard the example Mia gave us earlier in the show about her daughter jumping on the scales and the doctor made a bit of an uh, kind of a noise. That's kind of, well, well, it's not helpful. Doing the wrong thing uh, often just comes from a, from a lack of knowledge and understanding. And I think one of the things that we need to do is sort of get individuals, uh, clinicians across the country to lift their game in that area. I appreciate there's a, a lot to know about a lot of different areas, but with the prevalence of eating disorders in Australia, it's not good enough to say, I don't really understand. Um, you know, the first thing you know, clinicians yeah. need to do is 
not do any harm. And in that case that you mentioned, obviously it, it has been done. Um, that was, having, yeah. yeah, sorry. Having said that, Sam, there are many wonderful clinicians who are very interested in this area. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's not universal for sure. The cases that we've highlighted in this episode are not isolated. In fact, they're quite widespread. Butterfly recently ran a survey in regional and remote areas and really similar themes emerged. We did a survey associated with our Maydays campaign and for people living in these remote areas, around 90% said healthcare workers probably needed more training and education on what was an eating disorder and and how to recognise it. Um, So we have a way to go. I think um, general community understanding is, is also important because that enables people to seek help. Uh, you know, this concept of just, just you know, get on with it, pull your socks up, pull yourself together, oh, it's just a lifestyle choice. We need to get beyond that. Um, and in many cases, that's not just the community. It's also, you know, clinical teams around the country. If you're struggling with an eating disorder or you think you might just need a little bit of support, you can call Butterfly's National Helpline on 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's one 800 4673 If you'd prefer, you can chat online and check out all the resources available on Butterfly's website at butterfly.org.au or by email support at butterfly.org.au. Recovery is possible, but access to effective services is essential. That number to call again, 1-800-ED-HOPE, one 800 4673. The Butterfly Podcast is an Icon Media production for Butterfly Foundation. It's hosted, edited, and produced by Sam Icon, that's me, with the assistance of Belinda Kerslake, Camilla Beckett, and Mitch Doyle. Audio engineering is from Dan McHugh. Our music is from Cody Martin and Breakmaster Cylinder. With special thanks to Kevin Barrow and to Brooke, Mia, and Rebecca for making the huge step of sharing their story. And if you've come this far, please make sure you subscribe to the Butterfly Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.